This is Nemitha Saitmosa for NEJM Catalyst. I'm speaking today with Dr. Monica Burrell, Commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. In this role, she serves as the state's chief physician and leads a department of nearly 3,000 individuals who run programs from environmental health to infectious diseases and injury prevention to maternal and child health. In addition, the department operates the state public health laboratory and four public health hospitals. Dr. Burrell, we could discuss so many topics today, but given your experience in both the provider and health system settings, as well as government and the public health sector, wanted to focus on two specific areas. First, I'd like to get your insights on the overlap between public health and population health-related initiatives in the context of acceleration towards value-based payment models. And two, I look forward to discussing the opportunity and the challenge of public and private partnerships as it pertains to providing integrated whole person care in communities and a overall drive towards breaking down the silos that exist in our healthcare ecosystem. We are delighted to have you joining us today. Thanks so much, Dr. Mutha, for that generous introduction and thanks to Nejim Catalyst for having me here today. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with clarifying some terms. When I speak with leaders who work in the public sector, they use the term public health. And when I speak with leaders who work in health systems, they use the term population health. And oftentimes, they're referring to the same set of problems and challenges, and quite frankly, the same list of potential solutions. Tell us, from your perspective, how do you define public health and population health? What is the relationship between the two? And related to that, what are the different levers and tools that organizations in these respective environments can use to improve health? You know, I think it's a great place to start because how we define our work and how we use different terms, um, that jargon and that language can really affect how we then implement change. So it's really good to level set um, there. And, you know, public health, one of the issues with public health is that depending on where you look, it's defined in different ways. Um, one of my favorite definitions is um, one loosely based on the Institute of Medicine, now National Academies, um, stating that public health is what we do as a society to ensure the conditions in which people can be healthy. And to me, really um, what drives me to do my work in public health is that at the core of public health, lies the principle of social justice. So making sure that we're providing people the right to be healthy and to live in conditions that will support their health. Um, and so public health broadly defined as um, what we do as a society, then if you think about population health, um, you know, I like that one of the definitions that the CDC uses, which is an opportunity for healthcare systems, agencies, and organizations to work together in order to improve the health outcomes of the communities they serve. So broadly thinking about it, you could say public health is about what we're doing as a society and population health is about what a system is doing for their community. I will say that I'd add one other piece. Um, when I think about population health, um, I'd like to differentiate that from what I call population medicine. And population medicine, from a clinical point of view, to me is really how we think about taking care of our population of patients. So um, when I was, had my primary care practice, that is the patients who are coming to see me. That's my population of, say, diabetic patients. And to me, that's population medicine. So it could be at a hospital level, the patients who are coming in to be seen versus population health 
which I would hope um, as a healthcare community is stretching us a little bit further and saying it's not just the people who are walking through our door doors in a healthcare system to get care when they're sick, but it's however we define the population we're responsible for, it's taking care of all of them as well. So with that latter definition, uh, the lines blur a little bit between what a public health system might do and what a health system that's in charge of a population in their community, not just ones of the patients that are walking through their, through their door might, might do. From your perspective, what are the different um, levers or tools that, that these different types of organizations use uh, to improve outcomes? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's an important point you raised because um, you also mentioned when, you, when we started talking that, you know, you hear of public health sometimes in the, um, you know, more in the policy and public sector. And I think part of that is we think of public health as often consisting of regulations or policy changes that can be made at the government level. So it's what levers do we have at government, whether it's local, state, or federal. And that might be why it's more commonly used in the public sector, whereas when we're thinking in the medical or healthcare system, we're thinking more about our patients. But I must say that this kind of distinction, which is what you're alluding to, um, is artificial. And as I look at it, having both been deeply embedded in the clinical world and now deeply embedded in the public health world, the way we differentiate this does a disservice to our patients and communities because it really um, produces an artificial divide in our work. I could not agree with you more. And, and the silos within our healthcare delivery system at, at every level, uh, I think, are one of the biggest barriers to, to, to really transforming the way we, we deliver care. And, and one of those sets of silos has been between, as you've alluded to, clinical care delivery organizations and then public health and social services uh, organizations. And I know that you uh, have, have done a lot of work in, in Massachusetts to, to break down those silos. Uh, share some examples of partnerships and models that, that worked well and, and why they worked well. Um, absolutely, and you know, again, I, it's such an important point you're raising, Dr. Mothra, that I want to make sure to emphasize this, that this divide that we have between public health, social services that we provide, medical services, is bad for our patients and our communities, but it's also bad for the value-driven care that all of us are trying to provide. To me, this is really the single most important factor in our rising costs of healthcare services, and yet, which is such a frustration to many of us, some of the lowest health care indicators um, in comparative countries. So it's a really important point um, to highlight. And you know what, what brings me to this is really when I think about the patients that I've been privileged to serve over my um, 20 years of providing clinical care, and specifically the patients I cared for at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, um, because they didn't live in these artificial silos that you're referring to. Um, they were getting nutritional benefits from WIC programs or SNAP programs at the state level. They were getting assistance with housing or child care from their local social service agency. And then they were coming to see me for their medical care. And while I was well-trained and capable in deciding which medications they needed um, next for the diabetes or the high blood pressure, this was such a small part of what they needed in order to gain, as, as we spoke about earlier, 
opportunities for health. And I think about it, you know, um, thinking about ourselves, if we, if I had to choose between making a housing appointment or getting in line for a shelter so that my child had a place to sleep or coming in to a doctor's office for a medical refill, um, I know what I would choose. And we try to follow best practices in, in medicine and provide the best care we can for our patients, but the lack of coordination and looking at our patients' lives from um, a holistic, systemic point of view um, is really detrimental to the care that we're trying to provide at a healthcare setting. So I'm gonna interrupt you there. How do we, we all agree that this is this is a problem. We all agree that we need to uh, improve coordination across uh, these key stakeholders and organizations providing these services. How do we align incentives such that we actually start doing this required coordination? I think that in each of our settings, so the first thing is awareness and um, really um, being definitive about um, what the issues are and seeing them through this holistic lens, and that's one of the reasons I'm so glad we're speaking today. And then the other is looking um, within wherever we are along this spectrum, right, of public health, prevention, clinical care, um, what levers do we have where we can begin to break down these silos? So um, I'd like to give you an example um, at the state level, some of the work we've done. Um, so at the state level, we have dozens of data sets on different aspects of health that until 2015, um, we weren't looking across these data sets to leverage the information that we could to help provide opportunities for health. Each individual data set was looked at in isolation. So with the, um, and this is really um, rich and important information that at a population level could help us understand how to better take care of the health of our patients. So it's things like, um, it includes things like um, um, medical claims data, um, birth and death data, use of the prescription monitoring system, um, jail, and in, jail and prison data, and so on. So with the opiate epidemic, it became um, really imperative that we look for new ways to address addiction and taking a um, different approach to this. We brought together data from over 28 different agencies across state government, first time this was done in Massachusetts. And this allowed us to gather information on when and where individuals were dying and work to prevent those deaths by moving upstream of those deaths, if you will. And just to give you an example, um, for the first time, we combined health data with criminal justice data in order to make the case to treat um, opioid use disorder with medications while someone was incarcerated. And we brought this um, data together in ways that really opened our eyes to how working across the silos, we could better take care of individuals and address the opioid epidemic. And I should say um, that one of the key features of this is we didn't have any new state resources to bring the data together because the resources were going towards direct patient care. Um, we accomplished this through public-private partnerships, which included our academic colleagues and others in the community who had the capacity to analyze big data but didn't have access um, to the state-level data. And this became a win-win because our colleagues um, in healthcare and academics who wanted to contribute to addressing the opioid epidemic and better understand how to use big data at the state level had an opportunity to access this data. And um, we wrote papers together and also from the state point of view, got the analytics that we needed in order to drive policy change. Thank you for that important work. 
Uh, share some of the some of the challenges of, of bringing all these 28 uh, different sources of, of data uh, together, and, and how you uh, you and your leadership team uh, overcame some of those both technical and cultural challenges. So, um, you know, one of the important things about data that we collect at the state level is that we take very seriously confidentiality and protecting that data on behalf of the um, individuals in the Commonwealth. And part of the reason that the data sat in these in independent silos was um, for privacy reasons. So even within the Department of Public Health, um, I didn't have the legal authority to bring that data together. So our unbelievable um, team at the department came up with a way to bring um, the data together at an individual level temporarily in order to answer specific questions and then um, de-identify that and do it all behind a privacy shield. So they were able to come up with a technique that um, enhanced our confidence that we could keep the data confidential. But one really important thing to know is that we were not allowed or permitted to bring that data together until we changed the state law. So it took a change in the state law in order to be able to bring that data together. And people have been talking about bringing this data together for a long time, but the unfortunate urgency of the opiate epidemic served as a call and a um, call to action where our legislative partners then gave us one year and they said, okay, you can answer these seven questions. And after that one year and seeing how those questions helped us do things like improve the prescription monitoring program, put in place um, limits on how many prescriptions we, um, how many pills we could prescribe at a time, required use of the PMP and so forth. Then they gave us another year to um, answer more questions. And after that, the law was changed in a way that now at the Department of Public Health, we can use these secure data systems to answer urgent health um, issues, whatever they will be um, from here on out. So it really has allowed us an advantage um, to now use data in new and innovative ways to understand better what public health approach across these different silos needs to be put in place no matter what the health urgency we see. We have time for, for one last uh, question. What are one to two advances in healthcare delivery that you are most optimistic about having impact on improving health for the populations that we serve? You know, there's a lot to be optimistic about here in Massachusetts. If you take a step back and look at what we've accomplished in Massachusetts in health, health policy, and healthcare, um, a lot of it comes from the fact that our community members demand good health. And they demand that of us as um, a state and as of a healthcare system. And to me, our work now is to focus, to have a laser focus on health equity. So you mentioned earlier that we're one of the healthiest states um, in the United States, and that's something that we should all be really proud of. And it's about having access to this world-class healthcare system, to having put in place smart health policy at all levels. And now our work is to say, in Massachusetts, how do we make sure that we all have access to this best, best care? And that's why at the Department of Public Health, we're focused on using big data in this precision public health manner that I've been talking about by using our data to better understand the social determinants of effect that affect all of our capacity to obtain health and finding where those existing continued data disparities are so that we can focus our efforts 
on health equity and improving health for all of us across the Commonwealth. And uh, beyond the Commonwealth, also uh, creating opportunities, I would hope, uh, for other states uh, and quite frankly, other countries around the world uh, to learn from uh, what, what you are doing here in, in Massachusetts uh, and, and taking it back to their, to their own institutions uh, in, their, in their respective communities. Dr. Burrell, thank you so much for speaking with NEJM Catalyst today. Thank you for having me.